as I read through the book of Mark, I see over and over and over expressions of God's dominion over the world. We're going to be in the book of Mark today in this study through that book. If you have a Bible and brought one with you, we're going to be in Mark chapter 2 today. As I look at that scripture, I see over and over and over God's rule and his kingdom and his dominion over creation. I see that all throughout the Bible. And one of the ways I see that is way back in the beginning when God named humans, the man Adam and the woman Eve. He was expressing his dominion and his authority over his creation. In the Bible, the authority to name a person or an entity was an exertion of authority and dominion over that thing, person or thing. So, so, so the power to name something was a statement that you had authority over that thing that you named. So for instance, when a mommy and a daddy, a husband and a wife get together and have a baby and they name that baby, what are they asserting? The authority over that kid, right? Like, I brought you into this world, I'm gonna take you out, I'm gonna give you your name, I'm gonna tell you who you are and what you're supposed to do, right? I mean, there's a certain authority over that child. And so when, when God named Adam and named Eve, he was asserting his authority, his dominion over his creation. The interesting thing is in Psalm 147.4, the Bible says that God named the stars. And the fact that God had the authority to exert dominion over the stars by naming them, he was telling us that he has dominion and authority over all creation. Do you understand? So knowing that in the creation, at the beginning, God named the stars. I have authority and dominion over them. Knowing that he named man and woman, Adam and Eve, saying, I have authority over them. Who named the animals? God told Adam, you named the animals. So what did that mean? That God was sharing his authority and dominion with man. He said, I'm taking the authority and dominion I have, and I'm giving you part of that. You have the authority now, on my behalf, to name. And so God shared his dominion. He shared his authority with his people. So we have a share in the dominion of the kingdom of God. Now let me explain to you what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is God's rule and reign over people and territory. If we were to talk about a nation as a kingdom, that kingdom of that nation on earth would have authority and dominion over the people of that land and the territory of that land. Do you understand what the kingdom is? And so the kingdom of God is the authority over both a people and a literal territory. And Jesus taught his disciples to pray in this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, what he was telling his disciples was to pray in such a way that God's kingdom and authority and dominion would show up in the world. Now, the reality of our lives is that we live in the tension between two kingdoms. When this whole thing started, we lived in the kingdom of God, his complete authority and rule over all created order. Adam and Eve lived in this garden with God, and his kingdom and rule and authority was unquestioned and what happened is during that time, Adam dropped the ball. He fumbled, and the devil picked it up. 
And in that exchange, what happened was now the created order began to live under the dominion of the evil one. Sin, death, disease entered the world. And so God, knowing, seeing what had happened, knew that he had to take back and reassert his authority over people and the world. And so Jesus came. And through Jesus' sinless life, the second part of the Trinity, God the Son, lived, was crucified, buried, and rose. There again, asserting authority and dominion over all creation. The Bible says it like this, Colossians 2.15. Having disarmed the principalities and powers, that means taken away their weapons and their authority of the principalities and powers of this world, the devil and evil, he, Jesus, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it, in what? In the cross. And so what the Bible's saying here, if you read the totality of that, is that through the cross of Jesus, he took away the weapons and the powers of the evil one and made a public spectacle, literally marched them around eternity, making fun of them and shaming them in front of the angels. To once again say, I have complete authority and dominion. He reasserted that. But we live in this weird tension between the reality of this world and the kingdom of the evil one and the reality of God and the kingdom of God that we're to pray comes to this world as it exists in heaven. And every once in a while, every once in a while, we get to see glimpses of the kingdom of God in this world. Every once in a while. In answer to the prayer, God, your kingdom come on earth as is in heaven, we realize we live in this strange tension of these two kingdoms. We realize the kingdom that will prevail at one time, but right now we live in the tension between the two. See, the kingdom of God has come through Christ and shows up in our lives, but it's not here yet. We live in the tension between the already and not yet. It's already come through Jesus. It's already come through and is shown through his church, but it isn't here yet. But we see it, but not clearly. Do you understand? This is the tension that Christians live. This is the tension of Christian. This is the tension of faith. And in response to the prayer, God, may your kingdom come on earth. May your rule and reign come on earth. We're now able at different times and opportunities to see glimpses of the kingdom breaking into the fallen world. And I see it over and over and over in the book of Mark through the life of Jesus. And when Jesus said, because I'm leaving, I'm, I'm giving to you the Holy Spirit and you will do what I have done and more. He's given us the opportunity and told us that we'll have the opportunity to actually see the kingdom and the dominion of God break into this world. Now, we won't see it in its fullness until Jesus returns and we believe he's coming back. We'll see it in its fullness then. In the meantime, you and I have the opportunity to live in the tension of the already, but the not yet. The already of what Jesus has done. And given us the authority to participate in, but the not yet, because it's not here in its fullness. Titus 2.13 says, The blessed hope is the glorious return of Christ that will be with him in fullness one day. That's the blessed hope of those of us who have a relationship with Jesus by faith. That's the blessed hope that will actually be and live in the eternity of this kingdom. But right now in this world, we see glimpses of it every now and then. And we have to learn to live in this tension of the already, but the not yet. 
We get glimpses of the kingdom of God when we see God's dominion and authority break into human history. And we see it in ways that are outside the normal course of life. We see it in small ways every now and then through miracles and healing and provision. We see it every now and then when justice is brought to those places and people of injustice. We see it every now and then when we help the poor and we care for the widows and the orphans. We see it every now and then when we see people inviting those in their huddle and telling them about Jesus and give their lives to him. We see the kingdom of God, dominion in this world every now and then when people understand the word of God and enact it in their lives we see the kingdom of God little bits here and there it's among us but it's not here yet and that's the tension in which we live there's a tension that we see in the Bible over and over and over we see the kingdom of God when Jesus moved and healed people but did he heal everybody no not even close lived in the tension lived in this tension between the already and the not yet we don't see the kingdom of God break into human history every time we need it to. Not by a long shot, but every now and then. When we pray and trust, God may your kingdom come on earth every now and then. We see it. And so Jesus in the book of Mark starts to clarify who the Messiah is. The word Messiah is a Hebrew word literally translated the chosen one. And the Messiah is the one that, that the Jews have been waiting for for generations, had prophesied that he would come one day and bring liberation and freedom. The Greek word of, of, of the chosen one is Christ. It's this is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. Is Christ. Christ isn't Jesus' last name, though some people use it that way. It's a title, Jesus the Christ, the chosen one. But the idea of the Messiah carried with it a great deal of military and political implications and expectations. See, the Jews thought that when the Messiah would come, they would experience complete and, and total liberation and freedom for the Jewish people against their oppressors. And in the time of Jesus, their oppressors was the Roman Empire. And so the Jews had this incredible expectation of what the Messiah would do and who the Messiah would be when he showed up. So when Jesus came as the Messiah, they had some expectations. Matter of fact, we understand that from Zechariah chapter 14. In prophecy of the Messiah, then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. They had this expectation that the Messiah would come on that day and overthrow the Roman oppressors. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, the east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. They had these great expectations. And this was one reason they missed Jesus. This was one reason why Jesus went through so much effort to clarify who the Messiah is. And perhaps nothing's changed. Because it's oftentimes that you and I have our own expectations of who Jesus should be and what Jesus should do. So it's important for us to look at the Bible to get to know Jesus. And in Mark, we see who Jesus is by what Jesus does. See, Jesus' actions authenticate his authority. He came and he said, I am the Messiah. And I've come to show you glimpses of the kingdom and the dominion and authority of God in the world. And I'm going to prove to you who I am that I have authority to do what he's asked me to do by the actions that I perform. And so in the middle of Mark 2, this is where I want to start. 
If you have a Bible brought one with you, go to Mark chapter 2 in the middle of that, starting on verse 18. We, what we see, and, and what, I, what I've tried to do, and I'm, I'm, I'm praying that God gives me the grace to do it this morning, is find a common thread that runs through this chapter. Because if you just read Mark 2, you just see highlight after highlight after highlight. And like, well, how does this whole thing tie together? So I, I'm, I'm praying that God will give me the grace to find this thread through it all. And so in that effort, in the middle of Mark 2, Jesus introduces this concept of grace because he's reasserting and clarifying who the Messiah is, not the Messiah of the political, not the Messiah of the military, not the Messiah of religion, but the chosen one of God's grace. And so in Mark chapter 2, verses starting in verse 18, now John's disciples, this is John the Baptist, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. It means they were abstaining from food and drink for a while. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours aren't? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them, because it's a party. But their time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. We understand that, right? Some of us grew up in a time when mommies actually sewed patches on. Now, now people buy jeans that are already ripped up. I don't understand. I mean, Noel looks great in them, but I'm just saying, like, 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 back in the day, you didn't want holes in your jeans. And so mama would sew patches on them. And you had to be careful that the patches was shrunk as much as the jean, because if it wasn't, you put the patch on it, and then it tears the jean. So we understand that principle, right? Okay, oh, us old people understand. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. We don't understand that. That's got to do with a bunch of chemistry, and they didn't have glass bottles and all this stuff. But, but yeah. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. Nah, they pour new wine into new wineskins. Here's what he's talking about. There's an Old Testament law in the Bible, Numbers 29, where God commands his people to fast one day a year. That's it. One day a year at the Day of Atonement. That's the only thing he said. Just one day a year, y'all fast. That's it. The Jewish nation was taken into captivity up into Babylon. The Babylon nation of the king Nebuchadnezzar came down and took over the, the, the area of Israel and took the best and the brightest back to Babylon to build his kingdom. And for 70 years, the best and the brightest were in Babylon. The whole story of Dan and the lion's den, that was Shadrach, Meshach, and Bingo, three guys that got thrown in the fire, all that stuff happened up there. After 70 years, they came back. God released them, they came back. After the exile, they instituted four more feasts. So God's command for one day all of a sudden went to five days. They added one at the Feast of Purim. That's a whole other story about Queen Esther. We can talk about that later. All I'm saying is God started with one, they added more. And then what happened in the New Testament, the Pharisees, who were really religious, they instituted a fast two times a week. So God's command for one all of a sudden developed to 104. And Jesus is saying here, what are you guys doing? Here's what I know. People keep adding to God's requirements in an effort to be more holy by being more good. I add more right behavior. Maybe we do that, and we miss grace. And we think that if I just do a little more, if I just behave myself a little more, if I just don't do what I'm not supposed to do a little bit better, maybe God will be a little bit gooder. 
and we miss grace. And we add all the, here's what I know. I say it like I came up with this this week. When you add, when you add to in order to make more of, you take away from what was already done for. Jesus has done everything for us. Why do we feel this overbearing need to keep adding to what he's already done? Add more rules, add more regulations, hoping that by our addition of behavior, we get to see the kingdom of God. Jesus says, you don't fast at a wedding, friends. In other words, he said, quit adding requirements to me and to my expectation of you. See, the Jewish wedding feast was an incredibly joyous occasion, oftentimes lasting seven day, a seven-day party. Now, we have that. We call it freshman year of college. It's a little different. <laughs> but it was a joyous, and to fast during that type of joyous occasion was unthinkable. And Jesus here refers to himself as the bridegroom and his disciples as the guests. He said, what are you doing being so, I'm with you. Why would you put yourself in a position of fasting? I'm with See, his presence in life should be a time of festivity and joy. Here's what I know. Jesus' presence with the life means joy and happiness and celebration, not somber religious observance. Fasting was for our benefit to connect us to God and said, do it one time a year. Don't add all this stuff to what I'm, here's what I know. Here, we got to get, you can't change a better world with a sour religion and disposition. You understand what I'm saying? And so right in the middle of this, Jesus, I'm, re, I'm, I'm clarifying who I am. And I'm a God of grace. And I've come to liberate you and set you free from your religious oppression of behavioral and religious observance. And he moves from this idea of fasting to wine. It, it's probably never a bad idea to move to the wine portion of the menu. <laughs> and he says this new wine. And he's poured into new wine skins. And so he's clarifying again the Messiah, the one who institutes and brings the kingdom of God to our lives and experience. He says, You cannot put the kingdom of God and the grace of God into the old container of religious rules. So quit trying to mix the two. He says, The religious rules and systems that you try to live by, in other words, if I'm good, if I have good behavior, I'll be right with God. In other words, the religious rules of God gives us rules to follow to make us better. Did you know that Jesus did not die to make us good people? He didn't. Jesus didn't die to make us good people. He died so we could become right with God. He, he didn't die so that we would be better at obeying rules. And so this idea of the kingdom of God and the rule and dominion of God because of the grace of God, you can't put it into the old system of religious rules. Here's what happens. The new wine of grace of the dominion of God burst the old wineskins of old religion every time. See, when grace enters a system of religion, both are ruined. That's what Jesus says. Religious rules are repulsed by grace, and grace destroys religious rules. You want to mess up some churches? Start living by grace, God's unmerited, undeserved favor and blessing, and be gracious to those who don't deserve it. Because the old church people will say, no, no, you, can't, you, got, you got some rules to follow here. And Jesus says, you can't mix the two. You're going to destroy both of them. When you put the grace of God into a religious system, the religious system is repulsed by it. 
nauseated by it, and it ruins grace. So it says, I got, I got a new thing, grace, and it needs a new container, my dominion through you in the world. So Jesus establishes this new thing, this new wine. And it's hard to understand. It's hard for us to understand. Here's why. Because we gravitate to religion because through it we think we can control God. I mean, understand what religion does. We think that by religion we can control God. Like, God, I'm doing good and I'm being right and I'm not doing what I'm supposed to. So you need to, on my behalf, I don't know, maybe you don't do that. I don't know. I mean, I do. I've tried that a lot. It looks like this. God, that person is so good. Why do they suffer? In other words, they've been so religious. Why are you? We think by, by our religion, we can control his hand. And we can't. So what we have to do is, is, and we resist grace because it requires total surrender. Grace requires me to understand that by my good behavior, I cannot manipulate his hand. And so it means that I just must accept. When I see the kingdom of God come in my life and it's beautiful, and I must accept when I don't. And I experience the kingdom of this world that is evil. By grace, I have to accept it both. Do you understand? And we want to be good so that we'll see the kingdom show up in marvelous ways. And that's religious manipulation. And it ruins grace. See, Grace is difficult for religious people because there ain't a religion in the world that can contain it. So in Mark, we see this new wine. Jesus clarifies who he is and his dominion and reign in this world by what he does. And in Mark, we see religious and physical and spiritual pictures of grace where God's kingdom enters into humanity in ways that religion and behavior cannot produce nor contain. So, here's the big idea for Mark 2. That was all set up for my message. So, you ready to get into it? Yes. Here's the big idea. God's principles are for our protection. And Jesus' presence should produce joy. And when that happens, and people understand that and live that, we see the kingdom of God and his dominion in this world. Jesus continues to challenge religion that man simply exists to serve the laws of God. And he continues to express his authority and his dominion in this world. And so back at the beginning of Mark 2 now, starting in verse 1. A few days later, after he'd done all these miracles, I'm sorry, the, uh, verse 1 of, of Mark 2, at the beginning of this chapter, after he'd done all these miracles at the end of chapter 1, a few days later when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left to get into the house and see him, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get to him, uh, so they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus and digging through it, and they lowered the mat the man was laying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to them, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the teachers of law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit 
that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking like that? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But, uh, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. The paralyzed man got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everybody, and they praised God, saying, what in the flip just happened? <laughs> I never seen nothing like this. Your sins are forgiven. Now walk home. Jesus has shown he has the authority and dominion, spiritually and physically, both to forgive and to heal was impossible for humans, but both were equally possible for God. See, to say you're forgiven, that can't be observed. And because it can't be observed, it can't be proven. And so Jesus said, I'm going to prove to you what I've just done, and I'm going to do it by something that's easily observed and provable. So I'm going to do the easy thing, which is to forgive sin. I'm going to prove I did the easy thing by being, doing the hard thing, which is making the crippled man get up and walk. And he said, I'm going to show you I have dominion and authority over all things. This interesting thing in the healing accounts in the Bible, there always seems to be some block between the one needing healing and Jesus. And the interesting thing in the Bible is you look at it, that most, not everybody, but most, many of the people who were healed had to press through the block to get to Jesus because pressing through the block was an experience, an expression of faith. See, if there's a need, if there's a need, take some step in faith. Now, I'm not saying that we manipulate God's hand that way at all, but there's an element to this where God has to see faith first. Asking others to pray is great, but don't only ask others to pray. Because the issue is not how many people are praying. The issue is how many steps towards God. That's part of the issue. And so Jesus recognizes the ingenuity and persistence of the men as evidence of their faith. In other words, they're facing, if we can just get to Jesus, Jesus is going to do something. The interesting thing is that Jesus said, in seeing their faith... It wasn't the faith of the cripple now, it was the faith of his friends that got him to Jesus. The implication is, in faith we're going to do something. I don't know if it's going to be enough, but it's something. I don't know what we can do, that we can do everything, but we can do something. And the something I'm going to do, I'm going to rely on that, it's God will respond. But at the end of the day, here's the thing we've got to remember. Here's the, th here's the thread that runs through the whole thing. We've got, we got to remember that Jesus' activity is because of his grace. Not because of what we do. It's never because of what we do. And that's good news and bad news. Jesus' activity is because it's good news and bad news. Here's, see, we, we like religion because we want to influence God's hand. And grace is difficult because we just have to accept it. See, it's good news that God doesn't respond to us based on what we deserve. That's good news. It's good news that God steps in and reveals the dominion of God in our lives in incredible, miraculous ways at times. That's good news. It's good news of grace. The bad news is we don't get to choose, and we can't cause him to, and we cannot force his hand. We just have to accept whatever it is. And that's hard for us. 
going on in this chapter, if I can just press in a little bit. Once again, Jesus went out beside a lake. A large crowd came to, uh, to him, and he began to teach them. And as he was walking along, he said, Levi, that's Matthew, son of Alphaeus, sent a tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi, or Matthew, got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew, Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners, I mean, this is like kind of the worst of the worst of the worst, uh, were eaten with him and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with those sinners and tax collectors, they asked the disciples, who or why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On here, wouldn't you hate to be around Jesus for any length of time? He knows everything you're thinking, everything you're saying. You're like, you can't get away from, it'd be terrible to play poker with this guy. <laughs> Jesus says, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, it's the sick. I haven't come to call righteous, I come to call sinners. Let's realize that forgiveness of sin and healing don't come to self-righteous people. They don't come to people who obey all the rules self-righteously. They come to sinners and outcasts who respond in faith and repentance. The Jews hated the tax collectors. The fact that Jesus would call a Matthew to be his disciple along a zealot named Simon was like these two guys were cats and, cats and dogs. Well, they didn't mix. And he called both of these to follow him. And this hated tax collector Matthew worked for the oppressive Roman government. Rome had their taxes he had to collect from the Jews. But the tax collectors would charge more all this interest to line their pockets. Jews hated them. They were hated so much that the teachers taught that if a Pharisee entered your house, everything in the house was now ritually unclean because they were so dirty. The rabbis even taught that as citizens, as Jews, you were permitted to lie to tax collectors in order to protect your property. Some things don't change. <laughs> Every April 15th, I'm just doing what the Bible did. Anybody from the IRS is watching this recording? I'm joking. Because <laughs> after all, it's not what you keep. It's not what you make. It's what you keep, right? And so they said, just lie about it and keep it. But, but for Matthew to forget that, here's the point. For Matthew to follow Jesus, there was no turning back for him. The other fishermen, if they left their nets and their boats and followed, they could, if it went bad, they could always go back to fishing. But Matthew, to leave that position... To follow if it went bad, it was no going back. And Matthew saw something about the dominion and the kingdom of God in the grace of God that says, I will let go of all of it. Here's the thing. The underlying question is this. Does Jesus have complete authority and dominion over me and my future? I know I got to be done. I'm going to press in a little bit more. When Jesus says only the sick need a doctor, that was a common proverb for both Jews and non-Jews. And there's no statement of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark that is more profound and powerful than that. See, the new thing about Christianity was not the idea that God saves sinners. That's nothing new. No Jew would have argued with that. But the new thing about Christianity and the kingdom of God and the dominion of God in this world is the assertion that God saves and loves Sinners as sinners. That before we do anything good, before we get anything cleaned up, before we stop and before we start, 
God loves us and saves us as that. See, the Messiah is saying, this is different than what you think. It's not about religion. It's about grace. And by my grace, pray that my kingdom shows up in the dominion. See, the Messiah is one who is with those who no one wants to be with. And those who were nothing like Jesus, like Jesus. Because he's so different. It's dominion and kingdom and grace. The thing I love about this story here is that Matthew throws a party and invites Jesus and some boys to show up to talk to all these bad people about grace and the kingdom. Here's the thing. Some of you could throw great parties. You can't explain nothing in the Bible. You can barely spell Bible, but you know you love Jesus and you can throw a raging party. And so do that and invite some people who can talk about the Bible to that party and let us talk to people that need it. You understand what I'm saying? This is a great evangelism strategy. Throw some parties and invite some people who can talk to people about Jesus. And so here's the thing. This summer, I'm going to be expecting some invitations to some really good parties. <laughs> and evangelize that way. Yeah, do that, man. That's part of evangelism. That's part of how you reach your huddle. You've got to tell them all about Jesus. Just throw a big party for your huddle and invite some of us over. Let me wrap up with this. I got a headache. I'm hollering a little too much. I got a headache. <laughs> One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and he, he and his disciples, they were walking along, and they began to pick some heads of grain because they were hungry. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful? You guys are so unhinged, man. But it's like I was walking through a grape field picking some grapes and eating some grapes. Who the freak cares? He answered him again. You can't even say nothing to Jesus. Not like, oh, it's like, oh, can I just get something by you? He says, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need in the days of Abiar, thought the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is unlawful for pre, uh, only for priests to eat. And he gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even over the Sabbath. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, I have authority and dominion over all of your little religious rules. And he reminds us that all of my principles are there for your protection. I don't put principles down for you. I don't make commands for you to control you, to tie your hands. I do it for your protection. And he affirms the Sabbath. The command of a Sabbath was for their protection. Now, here's the Sabbath. The Sabbath was the law not to work one day a week. Work six days. One day, don't work. Don't do anything that aids to your productivity and production. Just stop. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an example that was given to us by God. Stopped. He could have kept creating. Think of all the colors that could have been created had God kept creating. It's amazing to think of. He thought of something like a duck-billed platypus. Within. Imagine if he would have kept creating. What could he come up with? But he stopped. And he gave us a command to stop. And it's a gift to God from the purpose of the Sabbath command is for our good and protection. To provide us rest and an opportunity to worship. Here's what I know. I don't know of anybody who regularly practices a Sabbath who's tired, worn out, too busy, overscheduled, and stressed. I do know those who do not practice the Sabbath who are tired, worn out, too busy, 
overworked and stressed. Do you understand? You go home and look in the mirror and decide which one you are. The people that do not practice the Sabbath, that are too tired, worn out, overbooked, and stressed, will use the excuse that they're too tired, worn out, overworked, and stressed to practice the Sabbath. Because they've forgotten that the principles of God are there for our protection to help us enjoy life because of God's grace. And every time we see that, we see the kingdom of God, his dominion and authority enter our reality. Whatever the principle is of God, it is there for our protection. In other words, God's edicts are for our enjoyment. Do you understand? It's grace upon grace. And he's given us the authority to exist in the dominion of God in this world. Mark 2, the new wine of grace the new wine of living with Jesus, the new wine of praying and seeing the kingdom of God express itself in our world, not all the time, but sometimes. And because there is the reality of the sometime and the promise of the sometime, we will continue to pray, God, your kingdom come on earth. Not because I'm good, not because I deserve it, not because I've obeyed the rule, but simply because of your grace. You've exerted authority and dominion in this world. It takes reality in my life by your grace. Friends, God is meant to be enjoyed. Friends, God, his authority is meant to be enjoyed. Enjoy his grace. Enjoy his principles. Enjoy life with him on this earth with the full authority of his dominion. We pray, God, we know the kingdom of this world in which we live, and it is evil and bad with sickness and destruction all around us. But we pray for your kingdom to come, and we realize that we live in the tension of the both and the and, the current but the not yet. And we desire his kingdom to come. And we pray for opportunities to see it expressed in our lives. Jesus' presence in a life should always produce joy. And his grace does bring liberation and freedom. And I would encourage you with everything in my being to come to this Messiah now. To put yourself in a position to see his kingdom come on this earth in your life in incredibly miraculous ways as he chooses to do by his grace our prayer is and forever will be god may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven every morning god may your kingdom come in my life as it is in heaven every moment of the day god may your kingdom explode into my reality as it exists in heaven father thank you that you love us thank you that you have come to us to show us the way to you not through behavior not through adherence to anything but just simply by faith in the Christ because of your grace our prayer is now and forever will be God may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven God may your kingdom come in my life as it is in heaven God May your will be done in my life as it is in heaven. 
in this moment just sit here in the moment and realize the reality of these two kingdoms some of you have only experienced and lived in the kingdom of this world the kingdom of destruction the kingdom of sin the kingdom of death the kingdom of disease it's only kingdom you've ever experienced and by faith because of God's grace in a relationship he's opened up the portal to experience a different kingdom and a different dominion in this world access it by faith not by religious behavior in this moment come to him Father you're a good God some of us have lived year after year in only the experience of an earthly evil kingdom you came Jesus to reassert your authority and to claim dominion back and you've given us the right and the authority to pray that your kingdom again would come on earth we know it will one day in totality we know it will but in this moment in this time in our lives God would your kingdom come on earth in us as it is in heaven amen